0: title of the message this morning is, Wrapping Our Heads Around Love. I think love is one of the most perplexing things to figure out in life. It's one of the things that we ask probably the most questions about. There's so many different opinions about love. There's so many mixed messages about love. Especially in music. On your way home, I would challenge you just hit the search or the whatever, the button that just goes through the stations at random and land on any station, probably the, the percentage of songs that are going to be about love on any channel on the radio, probably 80 to 90% is going to have some theme related to love, to the search for love, to the questions about love. And why is that? Why is there this continual asking, this continual seeking I think it's because it's a universal longing, right? We all long to be loved, and we all long to love. You might be familiar with John Mayer's catchy tune, Love is a Verb. It starts off, he says, Love is a verb, it ain't a thing. It's not something you own. It's not something you scream. When you show me love, I don't need your words. Yeah, love ain't a thing love is a verb love ain't a thing love is a verb and that kind of thinking influences us when we say things like if you really loved me you would fill in the blank or if you really loved me you wouldn't fill in the blank right happens with parents and children both goes both ways in that relationship happens between spouses. It happens in our closest friendships. Why do we have such a hard time loving and being loved? Is love only a verb? Sorry to burst John Mayer's bubble, but love is more than a verb. Love is a noun. It is a thing. He said it ain't a thing, but it is a thing. I want to suggest to us this morning that our problem is that we don't understand that thing. We don't understand what it is. We don't understand where it comes from. And the problem is not that we haven't been told what it is or that we haven't been told where it comes from, it's that we haven't listened. And we've chosen to do things our own way. We've attempted to come up with our own definition of what we think love is. We've attempted to define love apart from God and apart from the love that he has revealed to us. And our ideas about love have become so skewed that we can't wrap our heads around what love really is in its noun form or in its verb form. And we've been in the letter of first john for the last nine weeks and john has already had a lot to say to us about love but in the passage this morning he's really going to drill down deeper and help us to explore what love really is again if you have the bible project outline the the two halves that first john is broken into the the one on the left there god is light uh, we, we've looked at what that means, how we're to walk in the light and to not walk in darkness. And have seen a lot of those contrasts. And the second half of the letter, beginning in chapter 3, verse 11, we've seen this the last few weeks, is that God is love. And we've been looking at what that means, that God is love, and the implications of that, and how we should live our lives. On the back, we have the different tests. We have the theological test, what do we believe? And the moral test, how do we live do we obey God's commandments? And then the third test is the social test. And that's the test of do we love? Do we love one another? Do we love God? And that's really going to be the heart of what, is, what John is saying today. This is the social test. And John is going to help us wrestle with some of the most challenging questions that we face when it comes to love. Do I really love God? Does God really love me? Do I really love other people? I think we all probably wrestle with those questions on some level. And I hope this morning this text really helps us to to dig deeper and answer those questions. So, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at four aspects of love in this passage. They're all just one word. We're going to look at love's demand, love's source, love's assurance, and love's revelation. So love's demand, love's source, love's assurance, and love's revelation. Let's go to our text together, 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. I'll be reading through verse 21. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. We're going to look at these four aspects of love. Love's demand, love's source, love's assurance, and love's revelation, mainly in verses 7 through 12 here. And then we'll briefly look at verses 13 to 21. But the first thing I want us to see here as we look at verse 7 is how John addresses the believers here that he is writing to. He calls them beloved. Beloved, let us love one another. This term he uses this term beloved six times in this letter. It's one of his favorite terms uh, to to address those he is writing to. Uh, two times he uses it in this passage. Beloved, he's saying those who are loved by God, those who are objects of His affection. In chapter 3, verse 2, he said, Beloved, we are God's children. I believe that John wanted his original readers and us today to hear this address and be reminded of our true identity. That we are beloved children of God. As the Father has loved the Son, so He loves those of us who are in His Son. And we need to be reminded of that. I think this might be the the first and the most important step to wrapping our heads around this idea of love. It's knowing who we are. It's knowing that we are beloved children of God. And John's going to go on and make some very profound statements that back this claim up. So let's dig into this first paragraph here, verses 7 to 12, as we see these four aspects of love clearly laid out. We start with love's demand Seven, the beginning of seven there. Let us love one another. John has made this point already over and over in his letter. Chapter 3, verse 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Chapter 3, verse 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And he's going to make that same claim several more times in this passage here. We should love because we are commanded. We should love because God first loved us. We're going to see that in verse 11 and verse 19 in this passage. And we should love because it's how the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. I mentioned this verse many times as we've gone through First John here. John chapter 13 This is after Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They're in the upper room. He says to them, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You can't fake this. This isn't just some slick marketing technique. This is how you grow a church. You just get a bunch of people to act like they really love one another. The early church didn't strategize their way to growth and influence in the pagan society around them by faking love. True love is self-giving and it's self-sacrificing. If someone walks in here and they see a bunch of people who are only concerned with themselves, only concerned with their own needs and their own lives... They're going to be able to tell right away. I've shared a a statement with some of you that's probably one of my favorite quotes. And it's, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I have this picture in my office to remind me of that. This is my my best friend in China, Joey. Uh, He was on my team. He was my team leader uh, for part of the time. And this is us sitting in the office where we'd have our team meetings and I look at this and I'm reminded that that was a theme of our team. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. And You might be like, what on earth does that mean? It means that the culture that we build, the, the way we do things, is always more important than the strategies that we have. It means we can have all the right strategies. We can, we can plan and we can do all the right things. But in this case, if, if love, if true love isn't undergirding all those things, then it's just strategy. It's just something on paper. And that culture that we build needs to be important. It needs to be the central thing. Our vision as a church is a community of Christ followers called to know, love, and serve God and others. And the idea of of loving God and loving others, it's the greatest commandment that Jesus talked about. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Loving your neighbor as yourself. There's a quote I want to share with you from one of the commentaries I was reading this week. I think it really, really speaks to this idea. He says, churches must be communities marked by this intentional care and love. All the outreach programs in the world cannot approach the power of seeing this love lived out in tangible ways on a consistent basis. John has told us that this is the way God will be seen. But too often it is easier to plan another program than to engage in messy, vulnerable love for one another. He speaks here about himself. He says, I have seen this lived out as fellow believers went out of their way to minister to my family in times of grief and suffering. And onlookers were bewildered by what they saw. Who are these people? Why would they go to such trouble for you? When I told them they were members of our church, they responded, What kind of church do you go to? Even in my Bible Belt community, the door was now open to explain the love of God. Brothers and sisters, are we allowing God to open those kinds of doors by the way that we love each other? Is the world around us looking and seeing, saying, asking, Who are you people? what What are you guys about? I pray that that would be true of us here at Livingstone. You know, as a church planter, I get all kinds of questions from people like, hey, how, you know how's the church going and is it growing and how do you you know how do you grow a church and all these things about, about strategy and outreach and all these things? And it can be overwhelming at times. It can be overwhelming to feel like... Man, you know what? I just got to go, go read the books, right? I got to read the strategy books. I got to just figure out what's working. What are other people doing? And I got to just go do those things. And then the church will grow. But that's all just smoke and mirrors. If the culture's not there, all the strategy, it's worthless. I want to encourage you guys to, to love one another and to trust God that he is at work that he is building his kingdom, and that we are a part of something beautiful here. And it can be challenging at times, right? It can be discouraging. Summer's coming up, right? I'm already preparing my heart for the weeks when all the families are gone at the same time, and it's like, where's everybody at? But who, I don't care, right? Because I know God is at work here, and I know we love one another, and I know we want to show that love to the world. So let's continue to do that. I think God is doing a great work here. And I'm encouraged by what I see. And I want to encourage you guys in that too. Love's demand can only be met because of love's source. Second part of verse 7. For love is from God. That word for can also be translated because let us love one another because love is from God. That's our true motivation. Love is from God. And we're going to look at this, we're going to come back to this um, idea of love's source in a minute. But because we know where love comes from, because we know love's source, we can have love's assurance. The last part there of verse 7. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God John highlights these two things here, which he has been highlighting throughout this letter. Being born of God and knowing God. So the first thing is the new birth. We are children of God. We saw in chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We belong to him. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. Then verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does not, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if we love God, it's, it's evidence that we are born of him. And then the second thing he says is that we know God. And this isn't just knowledge about God. It's not just saying, oh, I read a book, and I I hear that there's there's this God who created the world, and I know what his name is, and I have this information in my head. The word that John is using for know here is actually a word that's talking about personal experience. It's talking about intimate knowledge. And it's one of John's favorite words that he uses. He actually uses this word 25 times in this letter. It's the Greek word gnosis, which is the word that's connected to the word gnostic. So remember the heretics that John is, is addressing are probably an early form of the Gnostics, these people who claim to have this special knowledge about God. They said they had some special insight that the true Christians didn't have. And we see stuff like that all the time today, right? So, you know, come, come join our club, come get in this inside circle, and we've got the special knowledge. And John says, no, you know God. Because you know Christ and you know the love of God. There's not some secret, hidden knowledge. It's a knowledge of experience that you've been been bought with a price. You've been redeemed by him and you know him and you love him. I think it's interesting that John points to our love for one another as our evidence and our assurance that we are born of God and that we know God. That is how we see that those things are true. By the way that we love one another. And you might struggle with assurance in your Christian life. You might ask questions like Am I really born again? Do I really know God? Let me ask you Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? This isn't the only grounds for our assurance. It can't be the only grounds for our assurance because then it would be based on what we're doing. But we'll see in the next section how our assurance is grounded also, and most importantly, in what God has done for us. But don't overlook this important part of the equation. This relationship between the assurance that we have in our Christian life, the assurance we have of our salvation, and the love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, the the comparison between Cain and Jesus. Don't be like Cain, right? Be like Jesus, the one who laid down his life. Don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. And this doesn't come naturally for us. This is a, a work, a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to produce this kind of love. Because if we are left to ourselves, we would be just like Cain. We would murder our brother. We would ask the question, am I my brother's keeper? Well, John follows his statement of assurance with a statement of anti-assurance in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And then he follows that. second half of verse 8 with talking about the source again because God is love okay now we can dig into this idea of love's source a little bit what does John mean here when he says God is love says it here in verse 11 or verse sorry verse 8 and then he says it again in verse 16 how do we wrap our minds around this statement God is love it feels very abstract at times feels hard to hard to define hard to grasp in his famous book knowing god J I Packer calls this one of the most tremendous utterances in the bible god is love these three letter these three words are one of the most tremendous utterances in the bible and i think he's right i think it is tremendous and it's one of the most tremendous things and it would be tremendous if john said it and didn't say anything more about it. It would still be just as tremendous. But thankfully John doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't just say God is love. And then not follow it up by leaving us to guess what it means. He tells us how God has revealed his love to us. Love as a noun is followed by love as a verb. We need to get, that, we need to get the definition first. And then we need to understand how it's played out. We're going to see that in our next section, Love's Revelation. Verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this, the love of God was made manifest. The word here, manifest, is the word that means to be revealed, to be made known. It speaks of something that was previously unknown or covered up, and now it is, it is revealed, it is made manifest. And John says that in the sending of his Son, this is the revelation of God's love for us. And his sending of his Son accomplished two massively important things. The first, so that we might live through him. Again, this is talking about new life. It's talking about being born of God, being born again. That we can live and not die because of Christ. Because God sent his son into the world, we can now have life in him. And the second thing is that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John has already used this Word propitiation earlier in chapter 2, verse 2. It means that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He's the sacrifice for sins that appeased the wrath of God that was due us because of our sins. The cross of Christ is where the love of God and the wrath of God meet. and You can think about it in the, the two beams of the cross. If you want to think about the vertical beam is the love of of God and that horizontal beam as the wrath of God it's where the love of God and the wrath of God meet D.A. Carson in his book the difficult doctrine of the love of God he asked do you wish to see the love of God look to the cross do you wish to see the wrath of God look to the cross And that's what John is saying here in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Look at his love poured out for you on the cross. A sinner who deserved his wrath and his justice. Look at his wrath poured out on his only son. The only sinless person who ever lived. If God so loved us, and He did, how dare we not love one another? When we have experienced and have come to know God, the source of all true love, then the demand to love one another doesn't seem so demanding. When we have come to know him, to experience him, the true source of love. And these demands that we are given, they don't seem so demanding. Verse 12 here, John makes an interesting statement in the beginning of verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. That's an interesting. It may seem like it kind of goes with verse 8, this kind of anti-assurance theme. But it's not. Because he follows it up with a statement of assurance. He's saying, even though we haven't seen God, if we love God, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, as as we were saying, the world can see God through us. By our love for one another. And these truths of God abiding in us and God's love being perfected in us this is what John explains in verses 13 to 21. So verses 13 to 21 are basically an unpacking of what he says in verse 12. This idea of, of God abiding in us and then his love being perfected in us. And so we're not going to dig in really deep to all of this. I would encourage you to, to go back and go home and, and, and read this a little bit more. But basically what he does here in verses 13 to 16, John's going to speak more about this assurance of God abiding in us. And this evidence that God has given us his spirit to to be in us, that he abides in us. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God and then God abides in us and we abide in him. So there's this bi-directional abiding that we are pointed to. So there's... There's just more assurance. It's a triune assurance that the Father and the Son and the Spirit dwell in us, and we dwell with them because God has sent his Son for us. Verses 17 and 18, John contrasts fear and punishment with love and confidence. He says that perfect love casts out fear, and that's one of those cliche statements, I think, that we kind of throw around, right? Oh, perfect love casts out fear. But what does that even mean? right? Does it mean that Christians should never be afraid about anything? I don't think so. I think there's, I think there's a place to to genuinely be afraid of certain things. But I think he's saying that fear doesn't ultimately dominate our lives because God's love is greater than anything that this world can throw at us, right? We talked a couple of weeks ago about the bombings in Sri Lanka and the churches in Sri Lanka. I mean, I, I think if you were, if you were there and you lived through that or you had friends who lived through that, you'd probably be a little hesitant the next time you go to church, right? But I guarantee you that people didn't stop gathering for worship the following Sunday in the face of, of those threats, right? I mean, it sounds crazy. Like, why would you go back, right? Why would you risk your life for, for this? It's because it's true. And perfect love, casting out fear, I think is what gives us the confidence to go back. The confidence to keep going when the world hates us. To keep going when it just feels impossible. And he points us back to the source again in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And then he comes back to this interesting point that he made earlier in the letter. Look at verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And John says, Don't be a liar. He's said this several times. Chapter 1, verse 6 If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Chapter 2, verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Those Verses there, the, the types of lying that he's talking about are lies about abiding. They're lies about knowing God. And there are lies about confessing who Jesus is. And we see all of those themes come back in this passage. So here now he says, if you say you love God, who you haven't seen, and you don't love your brother and sister in Christ who you have seen, then you're a liar. Ouch, Right? He's going to explain what this means here, the rest of 20 and 21. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this whole section, all 15 verses here are sandwiched in between verse 7. Let us love one another for love is from God. And this is the commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, this idea of, of seeing versus not seeing is kind of interesting. Uh, John is right. On the one hand, we haven't seen God. Right? We haven't seen God face to face. We haven't seen God in all his glory. God said, No one can see my face and live. But on the other hand, we have Jesus saying, If anyone has seen me, he has seen the Father. So the revelation of God's love in sending his only son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins, in a sense we have seen God because of what Christ has done, because we have seen Christ with the eyes of faith. Again, remember, do you wish to see the love of God? Look at the cross. The ultimate display of God's love for lost people And broken sinners like us. Have you been born of God? And do you know God? Those are the questions that John is getting at. And unless you've looked to the cross and to the perfect Son of God crucified in your place, then the answer is no. You don't know Him and you haven't been born of Him. But if you have looked to the cross, then you know him and you are born of him if you have looked to Christ alone and trusted him alone for your salvation. And this isn't just a one-time thing. It's not just opening up your Bible and, oh, on this date, right, I prayed the sinner's prayer and I'm good, right? We are to continually look to the cross, to continually see the true source of love so that the demand of love that is given to us here is not an unbearable burden. But it's a joyful response to the love that has been poured out for us. And we can live with confidence and assurance as children of God. Because his love has been clearly revealed to us in his son. And we come, we're invited this morning to celebrate that revelation of love. To celebrate that display of love as we gather together at this table This, the table here is not for, it's not only for those who are members of Livingstone Church. It's not for those who are Presbyterians. It's for anyone who has trusted in Christ for their salvation. It's anyone who has said, Jesus and Jesus alone. The cross is my only hope. The cross of Christ is the only way that I can be right with God. If that's where you're at this morning, then you're invited to come to the table. And if you're not there yet, if you haven't trusted in Christ, then we would ask you that you would remain in your seat while, uh, while we take communion. Love to talk with you more about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to trust in Jesus alone for your salvation.